Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The French History Podcast is brought to you by Evergreen Podcasts. History, pop culture, news, whatever it is you're looking for, Evergreen has the best of it. Today's special episode is by Arazu Ferrozan, a PhD candidate at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. She returns to continue her work on her specialty, Marseille's Port, France's Portal to the Mediterranean World. This time, she talks about how the great southern port city developed under the Sun King, Louis XIV. story today takes us to the winter of 1660 when a young Louis XIV who had recently established a self-rule government in Paris was on his way to visit southern France's central provinces. During his minority government, two consecutive civil wars and Franco-Spanish war disrupted the stability of the French monarchy. While the above-mentioned conflicts were more or less under control by the 1660s, what brought the king and his army to southern France was a series of local anti-royalist rebellions as a response to internal political issues and economic catastrophes. Having recently signed the Treaty of Pyrenees to end the Franco-Spanish War, Louis XIV was now determined to put an end to further uprisings, to unify his territories under a strong central government and gain the loyalty and, most importantly, the submission of his people. Marching forwards with his musketeers, the Swiss guards and foot soldiers travelling ahead of his carriage, the king meant to make an unforgettable entrance and display his royal power and grandeur. As he reached Marseille, his army infiltrated the city's walls with the help of the governor of Provence, and on the 2nd of March, he entered through a breached wall near Port-Réal. As a sign of his displeasure with the Marseillaise for the recent and unpleasant events, he refused to accept the customary two golden keys of the city presented by the magistrate and the municipal councillors. The objective was to show the Marseillaise nobility and dissidents that the king was no longer tolerant of their disloyalty and treachery. During his five days' stay, he profoundly restructured the city's administration and stripped the existing municipal nobility of their powers by appointing royal supporters. The newly reformed municipal government began functioning with a series of institutional, commercial and infrastructural changes that urbanized Marseille and expanded its commercial reach across the Mediterranean. Hi, this is Arzo Ferozan and you are listening to the French History Podcast. In this episode, we will discuss some vital elements of the urbanization and commercial expansion plans proposed by the French Crown and how they contributed to Marseille's success in Mediterranean trade. While the Marseillaise stakeholders were skeptical of the Crown's interference in what they considered to be municipal matters, in the long run, the urbanization project improved the port facilities, created living spaces for merchants, 
welcomed the Royal Navy to protect commercial shipments and streamlined the process of inspecting ships and cargo crossing the city's borders by land or the sea. Furthermore, in 1669, Marseille received the designation of a free port for Levantine trade, which enabled the city to monopolize Mediterranean trade for decades to come. A close look at urban and institutional developments in commercial harbors like Marseille reveal how port cities transform themselves to compete in seaborne trade during an age of global maritime expansion. During the 16th and 17th centuries, great powers of Western Europe relentlessly competed for resources and markets of the Mediterranean, while small ports hoped to attract commercial traffic by functioning as transit harbors. Furthermore, the Atlantic trade was expanding, and some historians even argue for the waning of the Mediterranean as the center of trading for Western European countries. However, recent research shows that many Mediterranean cities, confronted by these challenges, restructured public and commercial spaces and adopted favorable trade and settlement policies to attract desirable investors, settlers, and trade experts. For example, the Dukes of Tuscany rebuilt Livorno from a small fishing harbor to an emporium for northern merchants in the Mediterranean by welcoming settlers such as Jews, Armenians, Greeks, and Levantines who had extensive commercial networks across the globe. The English created their version of a free port in Tangiers to attract commercial traffic, and so did Italian cities like Genoa and Venice. In France, part of the Crown's plan to increase the commercial presence of its merchants in seaborne trade and attract foreign merchants was to create unique duty-free ports specific to territorial features and the commercial success of the cities. As such, Leorient was the designated port for French East India Company, Dunkirk for the North Sea and the English Channel, and Marseille with its strategic Mediterranean position and ancient history took the role of the duty-free port for Levantine trade or Mediterranean in general. During the first half of the 17th century, the political and economic instability faced by France enabled its competitors, such as the British and the Dutch, to dominate Mediterranean markets. Thus, the success of France's mercantilist policies in the Great Sea was contingent upon increasing the commercial traffic that passed through Marseille's port as France's made connection to the Mediterranean. However, compared to its competitors, like Livorno, Marseille had outgrown its medieval structures and was unlikely to accommodate the influx of population and commercial traffic anticipated, or at least that is what the Crown's administration thought at the time. The city's narrow, winding and dirty roads contained tiny, dark and crowded houses. The streets were also poorly paved with only a few wide boulevards or squares, except the crowded quaysides with little to no street lighting. Water channeled through the streets carried garbage and filth into the port area, and so did waste from industries such as tanneries and refuse from fish markets and fishing boats. Municipal deliberations were dominated by calls to maintain the harbor's sanitary conditions to smoothly facilitate its day-to-day -day operation. The 70-hectare city was densely populated with 45 to 50,000 people around the time of Louis XIV's arrival in the 1660s. Public and commercial life concentrated mainly on the vicinity of the old port, thus, due to congestion, many residents and businesses such as craftsmen and innkeepers moved slowly to the east and outside of the city walls. 
In fact, more than 2,000 properties appeared beyond the city walls, including houses and farms to accommodate the growing population. In the Bastides, the rich took refuge from the excessive noise of the city caused by the daily movement of people and ships. Although any visitor would admit that the hustling and bustling activities of the port and the colorful shops that sold antique goods of the Mediterranean were captivating sights. As Sharon Kettering says, the city's streets had a vitality and energy that was electrifying. In many ways, Marseille was also a unique city with abundant commercial opportunities due to its strategic geographic position. Proud of its Greco-Roman heritage, the city called itself a republic ruled by merchant oligarchs, many belonging to some of the oldest families of the city who were also in charge of the commercial affairs. Marseille's stakeholders defended their city with jealousy and protected its commercial interests. Politically, Marseille was always a semi-independent city, no matter which ruler occupied and governed it over the years. In 1481, when the last Count of Provence, Charles III of Maine, died without a male heir, Louis XI of France inherited the city through his will. From the beginning, the French kings were well aware of the city's potential as a Mediterranean commercial port, with a long history of seaborne trade due to its foundation as a Greek emporium in 600 BC. While Marseille could not commercially compete with cities such as Genoa, Venice or Livorno by the 16th century, its strategic location with access to major Mediterranean trade centers was invaluable to the French crown. Furthermore, the city was between the Sea of Provence and the Gulf of the Line on the east-west axis. On the north-south axis, it was a stopover for traders between the Rhone and the Mediterranean. Because of this favorable position, Marseille's ruling oligarchs continuously were able to negotiate a semi-autonomous status in governing and sometimes even fought for complete independence. The conflict that brought Louis XIV to the doorsteps of Provence in 1660 was such an attempt on the part of the Marseillaise nobility to rule their city without the interference of the monarchy. Thus, Marseille experienced a period of turmoil administratively and commercially at the hands of a select group of nobles, merchants and their families who endlessly battled each other over municipal office positions and loyalty to the crown sometimes even in fierce battles. Added to these issues were harsh winters, a severe earthquake, and intermittent plagues that were catastrophic to the economy. The central conflict began earlier in 1637 between the governor of Provence and Antoine de Valbel, Marseille's lieutenant of admiralty, over the city's lack of paying its maintenance quota. Moreover, as the Crown's representative, the royal governor's interference in the city's election in 1646 made matters worse by angering those supporting Valbal. In 1650, Valbal and supporters occupied Hotel Duval, which was the headquarters of the city's political and commercial administration. When Valbal died in 1655, a royalist, Henri Dupet, succeeded the stewardship of Provence. However, his allegiances from a former frondeur to a royalist did not set well with some of the most influential people in Provence, particularly with the nobleman Gaspar de Nuzel, who continued where Valbal had left off and pursued the city's goal of independence against Dupet. 
Nizal led a series of uprisings and proceeded to an election in 1658, despite the opposition from Tepet, and created a municipal government in Hotel Duvel. The rebellions and resistance continued until November of 1659, when marching from Tulo, the Crown's military ships closed the port's entrance, and Nizal went into hiding. Eventually, some opposers faced execution, and others were stripped of their noble titles, fined, or beheaded. In January, the king made his way to several cities in the south to deal with the crisis and arrived in Marseille by March of 1660. The end of this political crisis, as mentioned previously, resulted in significant changes in Marseille's municipal structure, commercial infrastructure, and urban development for the next few decades. While Marseille was not the only city to rebel against the crown in this period, it was a notably important commercial center for the monarchy to ignore such discontent against his authority. Furthermore, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, minister of finance to Louis XIV, had devised a major mercantilist plan to expand France's commercial and territorial reach, within which Marseille was to play an important role as the main connection to the Ottoman port cities in the Mediterranean. A letter drafted from the king's office expressed as a disappointment at the local nobility in charge of the city's governance for their disloyalty, misconduct, and damages to the commercial stability of the port. Thus, the reorganization of the municipal government curbed the power of the nobility who rebelled against the king and returned the authority of the Chamber of Commerce, which the council had abolished during the volatile period of the political infractions. The king banned the nobility from holding official positions that gave them political power, and he placed an army of French and Swiss soldiers in the city, demolished the city's gate, and constructed a royal arsenal. He appointed the royalist, Nicolas Arnault, as a steward of justice, police, and finance to fortify the city and the royal galleys. The construction of Fort Saint-Jean and Fort Nicholas is still standing on the two sides of the old port, began in 1660 and 1668, respectively. The purpose of the force was not so much for the city's protection from the outsiders as it was to intimidate and warn the Marseillais against the score. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code FRENCHHISTORY50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. 
To the crown, appointing the most royal individuals in the municipality was essential to maintaining order. He appointed a governor, not of Mercia's origin, to oversee the safety and proper administration of the city's commerce, who answered to the royal entendant of Provence. He abolished the Council of 300 and made a new administrative body, the échevin, or elderman, in charge of the municipality. Despite reluctance to trust the ruling elites, the king acknowledged their expertise in commerce and governance. He elected the aldermen from the city's most suitable merchants and expanded their authority and responsibility to assist the appointed governor in his duties. The échevins, in their basic terms, acted as the police or justice of the city and made the main body or majority of the stakeholders in the Chamber of Commerce. Most importantly, their task was to deal with the matters that concerned commerce, mainly to ensure that logistically there were no obstacles to merchant ships and vessels leaving or arriving at the port. Sixteen stewards maintained the port and the quay's function and ensured that ships were in good order before leaving for the sea. While the duties of the city's administration were separated at the beginning of the century, the Chamber of Commerce and its members continued to remain an important body of governance in the city who managed both the municipality and the flow of France's trade, particularly in the Levant and North Africa. They received frequent reports from the ambassadors and consuls who informed them of trade conditions and merchant conduct at the Ottoman port cities. Following the administrative changes, Colbert proposed an extensive urban development project that will transform Marseille into an important commercial center worthy of his mercantilist ambitions. In the second half of the century, the French landscape altered in various ways due to the rise of absolutism and the crown's goal of taking charge of the urban spaces. However, Marseille was a challenging city for Colbert and the crown, because the strong-headed urban elites and wealthy merchants, and now the Ishevan, opposed any development ideas that did not come to their table locally, suggesting that changes implemented by the outsiders would ruin their city. When Colbert became the Controller General of Finance in 1665, he suggested that the political instability and economic downturn in the first half of the century had diverted foreign investors and merchants from conducting trade through the city's port. Not to mention that there were also official orders preventing non-Catholics and some foreign merchants such as Jews from conducting trade in the city. If the crown wished to maximize profit by using Marseille's Mediterranean connection to its fullest, there was an immediate need for expansion and efficient facilities to accommodate commercial and migratory traffic. The Agrandissement, or urban expansion project, had three components. First, to plan a neighborhood for naval and royal personnel. Second, to devise a plan to encourage prominent merchants to move to the new city. And third, to improve the movement of people and goods by building wider boulevards. As a result, the inhabitants would inherit a larger city with better avenues for commercial traffic, new living quarters, improved port facilities, and sanitary living conditions. These changes meant to attract foreign merchants, dignitaries, investors, and other notable financiers to trade, visit, and at times permanently settle. The plan included widening the main boulevards and building new housing for the elites with careful attention to space, sanitation, and physical appearance. 
shipyards, galleys, warehouses, and two forts, Sejong and St. Nicholas, secure sea traffic. In this strategy, the new city section was dedicated mainly to the residents of the elite merchants of Marseille, foreign nobility and officers, bourgeois foreigners, or those who had performed commerce for over 12 years. Beautification of the city was a vital consideration to attract foreign traffic, not only merchants, but delegates, ambassadors, and other officials who visited the city. The royal galleys needed a space and facilities to impress foreign officials and demonstrate the king's power and grandeur. The city plan included a courtyard, a market, a garden, hotels, and lodging facilities for different social classes. One historian writes, Colbert's aspiration for France to emulate imperial Rome found physical expression in urban expansion and the construction of the new classical public buildings and the restoration of antique monuments, architecture imperialism that transformed Marseille as well. In June of 1666, articles and conditions granted François Rostan the right to enlarge the city, accommodating space for galleys, rebuilding the arsenal, the residential quarters, and a new market, and he also was in charge of collecting taxes to fund some aspects of the project. The urbanization project met with mixed reactions from the chamber and the municipality. They did not appreciate the monarchy's interference in such internal matters and proposed that such changes must be deliberated in the city's council before implementation. They argued that the project catered to the needs of the foreigners and not of the Marseillaise. The new taxes would ruin businesses, landlords would be left with excessive burden, and expansion would create a taste for luxury, causing many to lose their fortunes. Nicholas Arnault accused the Echevants of self-interest, advising Colbert to enforce the royal plan, even it meant without their permission. However, Colbert eventually gave in to the wishes of the Marseillaise with some compromise, and the Echevants reluctantly agreed based on his promise that all aspects of the project would be implemented with mutual agreement. The Echeva became the leading body of the project, including a newly formed Bureau of the Municipal Magistracy and six elected directors to oversee the process. The Echeva subsequently submitted their own revision of the existing plan by assigning local architects by the names of Gaspard Pouget and Matthew Portel, who extended the city 195 hectares from the eastern and southern sides with wider streets around the port area. They incorporated regional and Italian-style architecture with wider streets and apartment buildings adorned with Ionic and Corinthian columns, even using Italian construction material. The newly transformed galleys found their new home near the refurbished arsenal on the eastern end of the harbour with shipyards along the southeastern side of the port. Merchants too found better living conditions in the new part of the city while the Echevin, the royal commissioner and the galley officers resided in their own specific districts. The Crown designated around 100,000 livres to repair the port and rebuild the arsenal and the quay. However, Colbert built the city for some of the expense of the project. While the 1660 structural reforms created some political stability and allowed the Chamber of Commerce to focus exclusively on the management of commerce, there was an immediate need to encourage investment in trading companies and motivate merchants to participate in seaborne trade. 
The expansion project prepared Marseille for its forthcoming designation as a free port in order to accommodate the expected increase in trading traffic. Thus, in 1669, a royal edict declared Marseille a free port for Levantine trade. During the early modern period, several port cities implemented the concept in varying degrees to attract merchants and expand local commercial industries. These free ports were designated as spaces where states eliminated or reduced taxes, fees, or tariffs to stimulate economic activities. In 1666, Colbert complained that the inadequate quality of goods exchanged due to the lack of proper inspection had made commerce less profitable, and a rather wasteful trade was an impediment to French's economy. The import fees of 20% tax implemented during the early 17th century, which initially benefited the city, in the long run deterred foreign merchants from exchanging goods through the old port. Many merchants preferred to trade through Livorno, where they had facilities to store their goods and import without any fees. The decline in textile industry in particular was the primary concern because it consumed a significant part of the imported raw materials from the Levant to manufacture French goods, which merchants then sold to the Ottoman territories. Marseille's merchants argued that it was difficult for them to compete with significant import fees. Other obstacles, such as a lack of investment on the part of the chamber to help the merchants, the absence of quality control, and the Crown's failure to address the issues of pirates and corsairs, all contributed to the overall loss of business. While the edict of 1669 allowed other cities in France to trade in Ottoman ports, it imposed a surcharge for goods from the Levant that did not unload by water in Marseille. This fee in many ways diverted most traffic from the Mediterranean towards Marseille, despite numerous protests by other cities. All the goods also had to arrive in French ships in order to receive the 20% discount, so long as they stopped in Marseille or in Rouen. The chamber opened offices in other cities to ensure that merchants and patrons paid the 20% surcharge that applied to ships that did not stop in the city. The edict was also based on the belief that inviting foreign merchants the who had expertise was necessary for expanding France's trade and eliminating some of the main competitors. The demand for Jewish, Armenian and Greek merchants had already grown since the 16th century among Western European states who wanted to take advantage of their expertise and experience. These merchants had established networks of trade that extended not only across the Mediterranean, but also in the Indian subcontinent and Asia, dealing with numerous goods such as silk, diamonds, coral, and others. Most of them learned to speak several languages, which enabled them to work as intermediaries or even dragomen, facilitating diplomatic negotiations. For foreigners who wanted to enjoy the liberties offered by the French crown, the edict granted settlement privileges, access to French trading opportunities, and a chance to become naturalized citizens. These liberties were conditional based on marriage or property ownership or conducting trade for 12 consecutive years. The ease of migration and commercial policies towards foreigners resulted in the formation of clusters of foreign communities that consisted mainly of merchants and their families, such as Jewish and Armenian colonies. In a way, the edict changed the legal framework to gaining citizenship as French subjects. 
the state's legal action to attract foreign merchants was not only a practical resource of commercial growth, but also a fundamental aspect of the mercantilist doctrine of the time. As the next few decades of the 17th century would show, the result of urbanization was beneficial to the city in many ways. It also created new spaces of settlement and business investment opportunities, such as real estate and the properties springing out across the new city. The urbanization project also prepared Marseille for settlement of merchants who took advantage of the favorable trading privileges. Planners paid particular attention to the Keys, Port area, and the Chamber building, where merchants gathered to make important decisions. However, the old city remained an integral part of the commercial life of Marseille, where shops, money changers, notaries, and other businesses that facilitated mercantile activities existed. The reluctance of the Echevin and the deputies to oppose a structural change seemed purely a measure to push back on the crown for imposing its power over the city's municipal matters. As one historian suggests, despite the monarchy's intervention, the changes occurred based on the needs of the classes who were instrumental in the daily life of the city and had a big hand in the commercial expansion such as merchants, manufacturers, artisans and foreign merchants who contributed to the economy of Marseille. We end this episode by indicating that the urbanization and the restructuring of Marseille's institutions may have been part of Colbert's ambitions to carve France's place in the Mediterranean. But in the long run, the Chamber of Commerce, its administrators, and merchants became powerful players in managing France's trade in the Mediterranean. The Chamber also became a liaison for Franco-Ottoman trade and diplomatic relationships. By the mid-18th century, Marseille was able to comfortably compete with cities like Venice and Livorno. Raw cotton, silk, olive oil, tobacco, grain, hides, and wool from goats, sheep, and camels came from the Levant and Barbary and were used to manufacture French goods such as textile and soap. By the 18th century, cotton and coffee from the colonies became the main exports to Ottoman Turks. Despite continuous efforts of other French cities, Marseille and its stakeholders successfully negotiated and were able to hold on to the city's monopoly over French Mediterranean trade well into the revolution. Thank you for listening. This has been Arzu Firozan for the French History Podcast. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.